0: I'm glad to have with us founder and principal of ASO Communications, Anant Shankar Arsuryo. Uh Anant examines why certain messages falter where others deliver. She's led research info on how to persuade and mobilize on issues ranging from tackling right-wing race-baiting to promoting clean energy and from honoring the rights of immigrants to reforming criminal justice. Anat has delivered her findings at venues such as the U.S. Congressional Progressive Caucus, Center for Australian Progress, Irish Migrant Center, Open Society Foundations, Ford Foundation, New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, the European Commission, and LUSH, international more than a pleasure to have with us anna shanker Arsurio. anna thank you for joining us good afternoon thank you so much for having me uh and and thank you for being with us Uh, first off you have a podcast it's called brave new words uh it is a new podcast and it takes listeners on a journey around the globe and it does it with you uh you unpack real world narrative shifts Uh, that actually led to real-world victories. First of all, tell us about Brave New Words and tell us what brought you to do this podcast, why you felt it was important to do.
1: Yeah. Well, mostly I just got tired of my own hypocrisy. And what I mean by that is I was constantly telling my clients and people in speeches that In order to actually win, what the research shows us is that we have to be for things and not against things. And here I was delivering lectures around the world telling people this message sucks and this message is terrible and this message is terrible, thereby doing the very thing I was telling people not to do, which is don't tell people what you're against, tell them what you're for. And so rather than continue in that vein, I decided to package together places where we had done deep research into perception and persuasion and then actually implemented those results in messaging across the board from digital ads, from speeches, social media, and one.
0: Interesting and exciting. Uh, broadcasting, I, I, I love when people do podcasts and go into areas. Um, I love travel. I love history, I love politics, and it sounds like Brave New Words is the type of podcast that was made for me. Um, uh, let, talk to me about certain things that you know, you've know you covered on your podcast and I haven't had the opportunity to listen to. Um, uh, Jacinda Ardern, who is Prime Minister of New Zealand, is somebody I became a big fan of uh, when I saw not only that she didn't have to get married to have a baby and that she had a baby leading a nation, But also the way she truly led the nation and her people um, after the attack on the mosque in New Zealand, um, you know, where Muslim uh, parishioners of that mosque, uh, so many lost their lives, the community was traumatized, and how she was just so humane and so uh, kind and and really got down to their level as a leader in that nation and then truly led uh, with further gun f- reform uh, measures, gun control measures and reformation uh, that people did not um, fight about, but happily complied with. Can you, you talk about the election of that dynamic leader, Jacinda Ardern, Prime
1: Minister of New Zealand? Yeah, so I had the incredible pleasure, I've been to New Zealand a few times to work with the Labour Party, which is her party, And basically that episode is the extraordinary story of how she won a campaign in seven weeks. Um, The unbelievable start of that story is that seven weeks before the election, you can imagine, right, the banners had been printed, the posters were done, the slogans were created. The leader of the Labor Party, Andrew Little, decided to step down because the polling was so abysmal and all predictions had it that labor didn't stand a chance to get anywhere near enough seats to form a coalition government in the parliamentary system. So suddenly you have this new um, youngest leader ever uh, in that nation's history to be You know, put on the spot, and she's got seven weeks to rewrite everything and to change out the photo. And not only did she manage to do that, and did the Labor Party manage to kind of upend all conventional wisdom by really concertedly campaigning on what they were for, and not berating and you know belaboring how bad the ruling party, the National Party, which is Conservative Party, uh, was. They really spoke authentically to who Jacinda was, what she stood for, and said almost nothing about what they were against. And seven week I mean, you can imagine in a U.S. context, you know, think of a campaign lasting seven weeks and that's all you got.
0: Um, also, uh, some things that you have uh, tackled, some things that the world watched was uh, the repeal of the national ban on abortion in Ireland. And I know this is something you've covered on your podcast as well. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, another extraordinary story. Um, uh, so abortion 1983, there was a provision passed by 66% of the Irish electorate to formally ban abortion to write it into the Constitution as the Eighth Amendment. Interestingly, the yes vote uh, in 2018, exactly the same proportion, 66% of people voted to repeal that amendment. And that story is really the story of how you talk. To a mass population about voting for the right of women and people to be able to control their own bodies and destinies. And in that case, really, I think the core understanding, the core crux of it was a move away from sympathy an attempt to create messaging that says, feel sorry for her, feel sorry for that woman, feel sorry for her circumstance, to actually creating a bridge to empathy. And one of the closing arguments that I think is really potent and powerful that they utilized was a woman you love might need your yes. Basically raising up this idea that the future is uncertain. None of us can know the path a pregnancy will take. And at some point there will be a woman in your life who is going to need an
0: abortion and what will she do then? Um, also uh, want to talk about, this is something I, I really like the subject matters that, that, that you pick for the podcast. These are things that are like, wow, that interests me. So I think because I pick topics for my show like that, that would interest my listeners as well. So I definitely hope they check this out. Uh, talk to us about the right wing race baiting in the state of Minnesota.
1: Yeah, so I would say that a through line across my work and certainly what's profiled in the episodes is this project that I helped co-lead over the last year and a half that we call the Race Cost Narrative. And basically that was an exploration both nationally and then we did a deeper dive in four states, including Minnesota, to understand how people make sense of and come to judgments about race. And what we found in the research and implemented in Minnesota and other spots was that far from being this choice that the Democratic establishment says that we have to make between either persuasion or mobilization, in fact, what we find is that messages that explicitly name race are both more mobilizing to a progressive base and actually more persuasive to the voters that are on the fence, who unsurprisingly are largely white. And basically what the architecture of that race class narrative, what we implemented in Minnesota, is what I like to call narrating the dog whistle. It is making explicitly clear uh, as I, you know, my pithy uh, version of it is point your finger at the bad guy, not the brown guy. It's making explicitly clear that the right wing uses race and place of origin and, you know, other kinds of statuses in order to intentionally divide us from each other. Because when they have us divided up, when they have us arguing about who belongs and who doesn't and who believes in our way of life and who doesn't and fearing each other because, say, you know, some of us are Muslim or some of us are immigrants or some of us speak with an accent or some of us have darker skin, when they divide us and distract us, that is what allows them to do their plutocratic best. Because they know that if working people across race and place stand together, then we are on to them. And the fact that, you know, our suffering and our hardship actually comes from the 0.01%. It doesn't come from Juan, right? Juan is not taking your job. Jeff Bezos is taking your job. Juan's just standing in front of the Home Depot trying to get some day labor.
0: We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about a little bit more in Minnesota because we do have a general election coming up. We also have Democratic debate tonight. We'll talk about that as well and more uh, with uh, the host of this great new podcast. You gotta check it out. Brave New Words podcast. And uh, we'll be back with our guest, Anna Shankar Osorio. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is, as well, Anat Shankar Osorio. Uh, She's founder and principal of ASO Communications. And uh, we are talking about the brand new podcast, Brave New Words. Uh, Thank you for holding, Anat. And uh, let's talk about uh, Minnesota a little bit more. We were talking before the break. Uh, Because in Minnesota, is it fair to say that the GOP operatives read when they look at the 2016 election? The slim victory that Hillary Clinton had as an opportunity uh, to rally um, people who are like-minded with many of that Trump base, uh, using uh, racially coded anti-immigrant, Islamophobic uh, uh, appeals. Uh, in 2018, uh, progressives in the state seemed to, you know, uh, you know, do pretty well. I mean, they won across races. Uh, they defined what it means to be a true Min- Minnesotan. Um and uh, they used it with a, a, a very popular multi-racial uh, populism narrative. Um, but does the GOP, in a sense, have a bit of an upper hand, and is that why they're targeting that state? Uh, they target that state for a couple of reasons. One, the slim victory of Hillary Clinton, and second, the demonization of uh, Omar Ilhan. Yeah. I mean, that's it
1: in a nutshell. What we were seeing in Minnesota sort of... Definitely the GOP was, you know, trying to read the tea leaves and trying to turn Minnesota into Wisconsin, into Ohio, into North Dakota, into all of the neighboring states who had, of course, succumbed to right-wing governance um, a while back. You know, when you look at it demographically— It was only the strength and the unity of the progressive movement at the state level in Minnesota that kept it from being a Wisconsin, because demographically there kind of was no reason, right? It's not a California. It's not that the demographics were just instantly in their favor. And the GOP was really hoping that they would be able to flip the state. And they're hoping, once again, you know, it's not for nothing that Trump showed his face in Minneapolis. He generally doesn't go to spots where he didn't win. And they're salivating over this idea that because you have a state that has historically been pretty white— and have what feels to them to be a pretty new uh, immigrant population that's not just any immigrant population. It is um, you know, Somali refugee families who are largely Muslim, largely black. So you kind of have the trifecta in immigrant, Muslim, and black, all race-baiting, right? You have race-baiting, xenophobia, and Islamophobia all wrapped up in one package. And what organizers in the state, progressive organizers, were seeing in 2016 was that when they would go to the doors in a place like St. Cloud or in a place even like Rochester outside of the major cities, when they would try to just do an economic populist argument, right, uh, contain college costs, lower health care costs, that are wages and working conditions, kind of a standard, democratic, colorblind populism, what they would get back at the door was, you know, that all sounds great. That sounds good. Yes, I'd like college to be cheaper. Yes, I'd like to be able to pay for my health care, obviously. But if my Somali neighbor is going to get that, then I don't want it. Or they would say, well, the reason this is so expensive or the reason that child care is like this is because those people are committing fraud. And so what the organizers saw in the state is that there wasn't going, it wasn't going to be possible to have a democratic message that was colorblind because politics isn't solitaire. If your message doesn't just compel people and entice them, but also act as a rejoinder to what the other side is saying, it's not going to penetrate because the other side is race baiting and dog whistling constantly. So we don't have a choice to not talk about race. We don't have a choice. if. If our side, if the left, is silent about race, then the only messages the other side hears about race are horrible, untrue, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, anti-Black, you name it, invective. That kind of discourse continues. And so the organizers in the state, both within labor unions and in grassroots groups, faith-based, came together and said, you know what? We need a coherent narrative to counter this. And that's why we did the race class narrative research that we were discussing before the break. And armed with that empirical evidence that, hey, look, a message that explicitly named race outperforms a colorblind message across demographics, not just with our base but with persuadables, we created a campaign that we called greater than fear and that we implemented through digital video, through creative social media. We had clapbacks like dogs against dog whistling, or you could send us a picture of your dog and we would turn it into a superhero. And when somebody said something untoward in social media, you could clap back. And we really saturated the state with this idea defining what Minnesotan is as multiracial, as multi-ethnic, as multilingual, and we really presented an affirmative vision of what the state could be, and named what the other side was doing as deliberate division in service of their corporate agenda.
0: Um, I I also uh, wanted to, you know, ask you, um, when there have been attacks, especially on Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar. Uh, the people have rallied uh, around her. It's almost like the more the president and the GOP and the right wing uh, attack her, the more others come to her defense. Would you say that's accurate?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that part of that phenomenon, besides, you know, who she is and what she represents, being that trifecta of things that we have been taught to fear and to dislike and to distrust because she is born abroad, because she is Muslim and because she is black. Um It's also just a larger truism that if you want to touch a nerve, you got to touch a nerve. And when you have a message that engages your base to repetition, that is the way that you persuade the middle. Because if your words don't spread by definition, they don't work. And so what Ilhan Omar, what Um, other members of the quote-unquote squad have really understood about messaging is that you need your base to carry a message in order for the middle to hear it. And so if what you're testing for and what you're trying to figure out to say is just where are people already and what can we say that's not going to upset anybody – By definition, the base isn't going to be enamored of that idea, and they're not going to repeat it. It's not going to turn into a drumbeat. And so when these kind of polarizing moments happen, there are moments at which we can actually reframe the debate by speaking in our own terms as opposed to always responding to theirs.
0: Uh, I, I wanted you to – we have so many things to cover and not enough time. Uh, let's let's touch upon um, uh, Australia and specifically people seeking asylum in Australia. The government there crafted and carried out an immigration policy so abusive that Trump liked it. But over the past few years, uh, there is a conservative and openly xenophobic uh, administration. There are more people out there that are human rights advocates that are mounting uh, a, 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 a defense against this. They've won four campaigns challenging offshore detention. Of people seeking asylum. Speak to that briefly.
1: Yeah, so when I got to Australia in 2015, horrible situation, horrible policies, horrible public opinion, sort of everything you could possibly imagine against people seeking asylum, which is a term I use deliberately. It tests much, much better than asylum seekers for reasons that are probably obvious. And what we really did after doing deep research, which is um, publicly available, it's on the website for the podcast, you can see the message testing that we did, we flipped the frame away from human rights law and really sort of belaboring the abuses, which were legion, toward creating a full three-dimensional picture of these people who were being detained offshore in horrible conditions. And so we did things like take out um, articles, put out articles in Women's Wear Daily, which is a sort of lifestyle magazine, about cooking, about favorite music, about parenting. And we just presented the people in these detention centers in their full three-dimensional humanity as opposed to focusing in on deprivations and harms the research tells us and i really i say this very deliberately to a us audience every time we show an image of a person behind bars whether that person be a child whether that person be a sort of adult male when we show these images of immigrants in detention we actually reinforce the opposition's narrative that immigrants are animals And so in our well-meaning desire to depict deprivations and harms, we are actually acting against our own narrative by presenting the idea of immigrants as victims, when in fact what they are is fully courageous, agentive, tenacious people who have made a way out of no way at all. Um,
0: really, uh, appreciate you being with us today. We'll have you on again. Uh, definitely a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Anna Shankar Osorio. Uh, we are, uh, wanting you to check out her website. The, uh, I mean, her, the websites where you can find the podcast, brave new words, pod.com. Check out the brave new words podcast. Sounds like very interesting to me. I know it's something you will like brave new words, pod.com on Twitter. Follow her at, or follow brave new words at underscore brave new words and follow her at Anatosaurus, A N A T O S A U R U S. I'm Leslie Marshall. Have a great day. Marky Marco Maldi is my executive producer. We'll be back with you soon.